A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I took an Uber here and the driver said, <laughs> I think we can all agree, Donald Trump looks great for his age. Concerned because a blind man was driving this car. Hello and welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today on the show is Amanda Seals. Amanda has a fascinating story from starting out as a child actor to becoming a spoken word poet and MTV VJ under the name Amanda Diva to her current career as a stand up comedian and co star of the HBO show Insecure. She plays Tiffany. Now, Amanda has written a new book called Small Doses, Potent Truths for Everyday Use, that's available now. It's kind of an extension of her popular podcast, also called Small Doses, which, just like The Last Laugh, is part of the Starburns podcast network. Just one thing I want to note about this episode. We reference an incident that went down last month when Seals was kicked out of an after-Emmys party hosted by her insecure co-star Issa Rae's longtime publicist. If you want the full story on that, I suggest you listen to the episode of Amanda's podcast called Side Effects of Professionalism, Part 1. But we get into it a little bit more on this episode as well. Did you know that The Last Laugh has its own Instagram account? We would love for you to give it a follow at Last Laugh Pod, where you can see photos from tapings and find out who's coming up on the show. Please check that out at Last Laugh Pod. And now, Amanda Seals. Yeah, you were saying you, you don't, rec- where do you record your podcast? At my house. At your house. Nice. Mm-hmm. Do you have a studio in your house? No. Or a little <laughs> makeshift studio? I just have like this like back room that apparently is good for sound dampening. Yeah. But it just makes it easier schedule wise. Mm-hmm. Like we go there. And also like the vibe. Yeah. I think I prefer just like the the relaxedness of the house versus mm-hmm. like the studio for my particular podcast because yeah. then people get very comfortable and they get very open. Yeah, but sometimes you don't even have a guest and you're just talking yeah. into the mic and then is there is there anyone else in the room when you do that or is it just you? Yeah, the engineer and the producer. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I mean Rebecca is like this like silent uh cast member on the show. Yeah. Like everyone hears me always be like Rebecca <laughs> and they're like I want to see what Rebecca looks like <laughs> cuz Rebecca's on the side just making faces. Yeah. Um, so I actually, uh, saw you perform last night at the, at the benefit, the, the, I, I thought you would appreciate this. Uh, they invited me to come see it and I was like, yeah, I'm interviewing her the next day. I should come check it out. It was an interesting, uh, show. <laughs> How did that go for you? It's the IMF, the International oh, My- Myeloma Foundation benefit. I mean, I, whenever I'm in those situations, I am expected to make white people uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm the only black person that is there <laughs> on the bill. It's mm-hmm. a bunch of straight white guys and Carolyn Ray. Yeah. So I'm just playing my role. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you didn't expect me to come here and do jokes about mustard. <laughs> yeah, there, there was one moment that I really loved where uh, someone in the back uh, guy just shouted out, I, I love, love white, white girl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what you don't know is that I got a DM shortly thereafter from a black woman who was sitting at his table. Oh, really? And she was like, I hope that the heckler in the back did not throw you off because when you said that you were exposing racists, a, a number of people in our section uh, were visibly uh, affected by that. And she was like, but uh, thank you for being the voice in the room because oftentimes I am the only black person in the room mm-hmm. and it just feels like I don't get to have that voice. And by the way... He, she was like, I knew he was racist because when I sat down, he said, oh, are you here from a prison release program? What? White people, y'all don't <laughs> understand the shit that other white people are saying to us. Like, uh, yeah, that is insane. She said that that's how he greeted her. And then he was like, just joking. And she had to sit there at the table with him. So she was like, thank you, because you made it worthwhile. Yeah, this was this was I think this this was the second time that I saw you perform for a predominantly white audience because I also was at the Greek uh, theater oh, you've for, seen for Crooked hits. for Crooked Media, uh, <laughs> the Pod Save America live show. Audience, though. That was a fun show. Yes, it was fun. And also like, you know, I always say like there's people who are white and there's people who happen to be white. Like mm-hmm. the happen to be white audience is laughing with you. Yeah, because they're like, yeah, they're annoying us, too. 
<laughs> you know, so they're like, yeah, the privileged folks are bothering us too. So mm-hmm. speak on it. Yeah. But uh, I was also just very happy to like get to be there with like Dimitri Martin and mm-hmm. Patton. And like, yeah, that's the fu- one of the funniest, good... that's one of the funniest green rooms I've ever been in in my oh, life. Yeah. yeah. Ray Romano was hosting. Yes. He's good. All we needed was Seinfeld and I would have just, <laughs> yeah, I would have cried. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I want to talk about your book. Oh yeah. Small but... Doses. <laughs> it's uh, when this podcast drops, it'll be out. And I got an early copy of it, and uh, and Ooh. got to got to go through it, and it's 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 a really great project, um, and there's so much fun stuff in there, and advice, and um, so how did you kind of decide that it's kind of an extension of your podcast, which is also mm-hmm. small doses? So how did you decide that you wanted to kind of expand your podcast into a book? Honestly, like the the listenership was really um, encouraging. Of like, we would like to see the words you're saying on the page, we want to resource it. And it just, I knew that I wanted to do a book that could do a number of things. Like I just, I just didn't want to do just essays. Mm -hmm. And from doing small doses, like it offered me kind of like this space where I could like say little thoughts and big thoughts and Mm -hmm. stories. And so it just kind of intermingled with that. And then once I was with Abrams, um, they, I had pitched it with like doodles involved because I just mm-hmm. wanted to have something that's like multimedia. Yeah. But Abrams like specializes in like books that have art involved. And so they really like did a great job with the layout and with just intermingling my drawings and my images and making it seem seem and making it seamless versus just like here's Amanda's brain vomiting mm-hmm. in a bound book. Yeah. Yeah, and well, there's there's definitely like different aspects to it because there's your personal stories throughout, and then kind of more specific like advice to people. Mm-hmm. So how did you? And I think there are some stories that you talk about in your stand up that are also in the book, but mm-hmm. you kind of expand on them. So how is it different from writing stand up versus writing it for a book? Well, I don't write my stand up. Like oh. I don't write it down. Mm-hmm. It's all in my head. Um, so when I sat down to write it, it's like oh. Okay, I have to like carry the tonality that I have when I say it to the page. Mm-hmm. And that's when you find out if you're a good writer. Yeah. So you guys will be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> because I you know, I want people to be able to read it and hear my voice, whether it's in a recording or not, you know, and I want mm-hmm. in order to do that I have to like color it with certain, you know, literary devices, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of metaphor and foreshadowing and all the stuff that Mrs. Poro at Dr. Phillips High School drilled <laughs> into my head. Alliteration, metaphor, analogy, foreshadowing, verisimilitude, which I stay away from because I am a truth teller, yeah. uh, etc. So those things, you just never know where what you learn is going to yeah, you found that stuff kind of coming up when you were when you were writing? Not even kind of, like 1 million percent, <laughs> like Miss Poro was in the room with me, like, nope, go be- do better, do better. <laughs> where, nope, nope. And you know, you just, you, I, I just am such a, I'm not just a perfectionist, but I'm somebody that just wants to make something that people like, you mm-hmm. know, and I know the things that make me like things. And I love when I read things and it's very vivid and, you know, uh, when the language is just clear and colorful. And even when I write scripts, like my stage directions are very detailed because mm-hmm. I want you to see what I saw when I envisioned this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is this, I mean, there's so much advice for people who are, uh, might be coming up in the entertainment industry. And so I was wondering, is this the kind of book that you wish you had had when you were coming up and starting out, um, to, to learn? Cause it's all stuff that you've learned from experience. Yeah. But do you think if, if you had had a book like this, how would that have changed your experience? I mean, I just think so much of it is just like a loneliness. You know, you just kind of feel like even though there's all these other creatives, you're the only one Mm. who's grappling with these challenges, you know? So I think just being able to see like that someone else has experienced it and that not only is this person addressing it, but there's enough people that are experiencing it for them to feel comfortable like addressing it in a book versus just as like a question answer section Mm -hmm. um, can bring some people some comfort and just... I know for me, like, I I would have appreciated this type of book because I think it would have just kind of given me a little bit more peace in the process. And 
you know, they're, they're, we all talk about process and the artistic process, and there's things that come along with that that you need. But there's also stuff that I feel like I kind of didn't need. You know, there was a mm-hmm. little, there was a certain level of unnecessary stress. Like what? Just the idea of like, will people like this? Like, how do I get people to like this? Um, am I enough? Uh, you know. Like you ask those questions, but then when you kind of don't have anything to bounce that against, you can ruminate on it into a point of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of artists like end up when they don't have something to guide them. That's why we have. That's why we end up having like these workbooks. Like, what's the what's the art workbook that everyone the artist workbook everyone does? Um, Mm. <laughs> Someone's literally in their house right now yelling it at this device they're listening to this on. I'm like a coloring book? Uh, what are no, we talking about? No, it's like it's a workbook. It's like the artist's journey oh, okay. or something like that that everyone has. Mm. I, I have it. I just mm. forgot the I name. do not have it. Um, but there's also like just the reason why like people listen to so many artists' podcasts. The reason mm-hmm. why, you know, there's a particular video that Ira Glass has, a particular like talk that he did that someone made into a word video video mm-hmm. that is on YouTube called Taste. Okay. And someone sent me that one day and I'm telling you it alleviated my anxiety for like a good 6 months. What did you learn from that video? It, I learned from that video the importance of understanding that like this whole artistic process is not always going to make sense and sometimes when it's not making sense that's actually a good time. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of us who are like perfectionists or just very like type A about things like when things are nonsensical it can feel just like really paradoxical. It feels like the universe is gaslighting you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's when people start getting to a dark place. Yeah. Is there a moment in your career that you're thinking about when you think about being gaslit by... Oh, right uh, now, right now. Right now, yeah. Right now, actually. But, um, (laughs) if we're being frank. Right now, in what what sense? I've just got a lot going on, bro. got a lot going on. And I think that there's just a certain, certain, like... You think that when you get to a certain space that things are going to be a certain way and mm-hmm. they're not that way. And you're like, oh, and we've all had that. Like mm-hmm. With, mm-hmm. The, with the crush that you thought was going to be dope and then you get with them and you're like, oh, you don't know what apartheid is um, or <laughs> true story um, like or whether it's like, you know, getting into a certain program or getting a certain job or, you know, yeah. we've all, getting a meal. Yeah. You know, we've all had that meal that we really looked forward to and then it arrived and you were like, oh, this actually doesn't, this actually tastes like peanut butter and feet. I'm going to say So I think, you know, for me, like this, this has been a very like interesting year of like a lot of like success on one hand and then a lot of like uh, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. And so you're just the other part of this is that as an artist like you're kind of you have to anticipate that those spaces are going to come but as you get older you try to get better about understanding those spaces and when you have a resource like this book I think it makes it easier Mm -hmm. Um, I mean are you are you talking at all about sort of the way uh, the media covers you is there anything that you want to talk about in that sense or any frustrations that you have that that you want to get out (laughs) No, I just, I think that the media has become like very uh, disseminated into like different spaces and some spaces are a lot more reliant on facts than others. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just wish that was something that was more heralded Mm -hmm. uh, and and also more listened to um, by, I think, I think there's a space as listener, as viewers, as an audience now where we've come to kind of blur the lines between like facts-based media and like, I guess like gossip or mm-hmm. clickbait media. Yeah. And when we don't disin- when we don't like distinctly dis- dis- discern the difference between like what's news mm-hmm. and what's rumor, it gets really dangerous. Yeah. So I think for me, like a lot of the stuff that ends up getting I think there's like a lot, a very blurred line between like the things about me that are like fact and news and Mm. things about me that are just like someone either having an opinion or someone literally just making up a lie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as I was researching for this and Googling you and reading about you and all that, you know, a lot of what's coming up now is about that after party at the Emmys. Which is irrelevant. And that's, but, I mean, I don't know if that's what you were kind of alluding to in this, because that's been I mean, a lot of the, art. Journey. there's a lot of articles about it. Uh, there's a there. journey that this year has gone on mm-hmm. just by way of being a visible person, mm-hmm. right? So like the more visible you are, 
the more people there are that see you and the more opportunity there is for you to get rained on. Yeah. You know? So I think that I get like very um I think I get really like positive stuff that gets written about mm-hmm. me. And I think I think I I think I touch people in a lot of positive ways. Yeah. But I think that a lot of times like there's just a thirst for conflict that we are mm-hmm. definitely like involved in, in our current state of the world. Yeah. And I have a demeanor that <laughs> quenches that thirst. Yeah, I mean it's the double-edged sword of of fame though, right? It's like you the more yeah, attention you get, the more it. the more negative the more positive attention you get, the more negative attention you get. Yeah, I mean Yes, I think that's why. And if anyone who knows me and anyone who reads this book will understand, like why I just detest fame. Like mm. it's just a it's a byproduct of working hard and in a in in an industry that relies on visibility to mm-hmm. enhance your clout, your access, your options. You know, yeah. and the um, the thing about fame and celebrity is that so much of it is out of your control. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a type A personality, side effects of type A personality is also featured in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, being outside, like not being able to control like a narrative or just like the way that you are perceived is very disconcerting. And it's not a, for, for me, it was not a light switch flip. To realize, mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, you no longer have control of your narrative, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's taken me an entire year to truly understand, like, you know, you no longer have control of your narrative. I know you think you do, yeah, because well, you have an Instagram, but yeah. th- that is incorrect. Yeah, Instagram and the book and the podcast are all kind of. Um, I mean, I would imagine, are you trying to, you know, make your own narrative, right? Um, yeah, 1000%. And I think that's also just like a natural trajectory, especially like as a black person, like, I have always rooted myself in a space of like wanting to tell our own stories. And so mm-hmm. I want to tell my own story and I want to be able to, you know, be a space to relay the vo- the stories of others who may not want to or may not be able to or may not have access to tell their own stories. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's important to me to be able to do that. It's just I wish we had more of a safer space to mm-hmm. do that. in. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about your story because it's fascinating and, and really unique. Um, sort of how you got to where you are. So you were Ooh, you were thanks. born in L.A., but then moved to to Florida pretty at a young age, right? Mm-hmm. I was born here till uh, I lived here till I was eight. Then mm-hmm. I moved to Orlando. Was that a hard transition? I don't know if it was hard per se, but I definitely had like things to say about it. I distinctly remember telling my mom <laughs> like. Um, I just just remember telling my mom like, "This is so boring here. It's just boring. Like, there's no <laughs> cars don't pass by. Like, you know, what are we doing?" And then as an adult, I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad how boring it was. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jesus." Yeah. Well, I know you start you started acting at a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. So was that in, at all a, a an attempt to get back to L.A. or to oh, no, sort no, of? No, no. I I didn't even act in L.A. Mm-hmm. Like I I was, and I mean, you know, L.A. is. There's like Hollywood and then mm-hmm. I, I mean I lived in the valley like yeah. deep in the valley mm-hmm. so like I wasn't like Hollywood adjacent mm-hmm. by any means When you were a kid you mean or later Yeah on? when yeah. I was a kid yeah like I uh but when I was in Orlando like Orlando had become like a mm-hmm. very kind of like bustling place for for children's particular programming yeah. because Nickelodeon had built a studio mm-hmm. and I lived 5 minutes from there so you know, that was something that was kind of just being put out there into the zeitgeist. And so my mom had me audition for like a Disney dance show one Sunday, one Saturday. And I was just, mm-hmm. I just remember being like, you just want me to go for you. I don't know where I got that from. My mother is not a momager by any means, mm-hmm. but it seemed, it seemed like a thing to say. <laughs> um, and she was like, oh, no, man, let's just go. Let's just go. And so we went and I ended up like getting a call back and later that day like I got picked to be a part of the sparkling Christmas spectacular Mm -hmm. so I danced in front of Disney for Christmas uh, three (laughs) shows a day for three weeks yeah at eight at eight years old three shows a day three uh, three weeks, including Christmas. Wow. That was also my first time experiencing racism. So it was, you know, it, I have these juxtaposed experiences mm-hmm. with like good things and then like real things. What like, was that's the, like a what was the racism you uh, experienced as an eight year old in in Disney? Well, I was the only um, I was the only black child in that particular cast of Sparkling Christmas Spectacular, and all of the other children. Uh, 
not all, that's not fair, but several of the other children out of the 10 of us uh, made it very clear to me that I was only picked because I was black Mm. and I should not consider myself a good dancer. I should not consider myself worthy of the position. And uh, they made that very clear through their words, through their actions. Um, When I was, I, I, I remember... You know, we're in therapy now. I remember <laughs> in my, uh, I remember my my Secret Santa. You know, you had to give a gift for Secret Santa, and my Secret Santa gave me a half-eaten tube of candy uh, with the top off, and he he threw it at me mm-hmm. and was like, "Merry Christmas." So, you know, I'm I th- I get pegged as this like person who's a like you just want the smoke, and you're you're a. Um, You know, I was told the other day someone said I was a vigilante. Mm. And I think what it really is, is that from an early age, I was singled out by means that I had no control over and made to feel like I didn't count. And so, like, I literally have a picture of, like, this this group and, like, me in the back of a picture, like, with my face getting smushed <laughs> because someone is, like, literally, like, oh, pushing me out. And my therapist was like, this is the day. Yeah. This is the day you became the adult you are. And I don't think she's wrong. I'm, a, I'm not a vigilante. I'm a crusader. And I think that that type of person doesn't necessarily get understood much in this type of climate. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> great. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so <laughs> you, what was that? Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Oh, OK. No, I, that's, I was like, I want to hear more. What was behind that? Because mm-hmm. when my mom be saying, mm-hmm, I'm like, well, tell me more. And she's no, like, I well. Think, <laughs> no, I think you're right. Uh, so you you start uh, you start in the Disney stuff. You end up on a Nickelodeon show. Um my brother and me. Yeah. What was that experience like? Any any better than the Disney experience? Yeah, my brother and me was um, was fun. It was well, I was older too. I was twelve. Mm. You know, so I kind of just had a, a more handle on like the environment of things. My brother and me was on Nickelodeon's uh, set on their lot. I remember we shot across from Gullah Gullah Island, and um, and all that. Mm-hmm. And it was the first black sitcom on Nickelodeon. And it was just a fun experience uh, just because I hadn't gotten to make TV. Mm-hmm. You know, I had done like commercials. Yeah. But I didn't get to make TV. So it was really fun just getting to be in that space and table reads and blocking and shoot days and all of those things um, were learning experiences that I still carry with me to this day. Yeah. Um, so how did you kind of get from there to eventually you got into um, becoming a VJ mm-hmm. um, and doing some more like music and poetry stuff? So what what was that transition like and kind of when did when did you start um, getting into that world? Well, when I went to school, I went to SUNY Purchase mm-hmm. in New York. And SUNY Purchase is a liberal arts college, but it has an acting, it was a theater and performing arts conservatory and music conservatory. Mm -hmm. So it's full of artists and creatives. And so when I went to purchase as an acting major, um, I was just really just dropped into the mix of a bunch of folks that just love their craft. And because they had a lot of, because it was like a a commuter school, it's a state school. So there was a lot of New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also changed things for me too, because they just seemed to have like more access to, Mm -hmm. to their craft and like hip hop for New Yorkers was not just music. It was a culture, you know? And I really just dove into that. And I remember we had to do this like talent show kind of thing, like at the beginning of the semester, like, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I just remember like this kid in my class did a poem and I was like, that's an option. (laughs) Like doing a poem Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like, you know, a a Robert Frost poem, you know, it was, it was what we know now as spoken word, but I had never experienced that. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I remember up until that point, I'd started writing raps because a friend of mine was like, have you ever tried rapping? And I was like, no. He's like, you should try it. You have a good voice. So mm-hmm. I'd write all my raps as the fourth member of the Fugees. Mm-hmm. So I have like a whole rhyme book full of just like <laughs> fourth verses to all Fugees records. And then, uh, but when I saw this guy, Robert, do a spoken word piece, I was like, oh. Because the thing is that I could write raps, but I couldn't rap them on beat. Mm-hmm. This was a great, great struggle <laughs> for me. Like this was very seriously yeah. an issue. And... 
uh, when I saw Robert Do Spoken Word, it was like, oh, that's where I, that's where I, that's where I fit because mm-hmm. that's where my language can, I can set the beat, yeah. you know. And I think that's like a common trend for me, like just wanting me to like march to my own beat, set my own beat, mm-hmm. and I think that um, that started early on in my life but like once I got to school and started doing spoken word and getting into that space like it was so exciting to be able to just do that I wanted to write some hot shit some blow off the rooftop shit some get you in your gut to gun and spot riders out they rut shit some makes Downton cats say yo B shorty spit shit some so influential they call the newest testament shit some waging war shit Make you go to your shoebox And get your gun shit Bring a side out of exile Black Panthers got crooked politicians Walking single file Riling rally up the troops From domino games Corners and stoop shit Some put down your two way And connect to this lyrical fiber Optic shit Some damn Our brother need to start Making some plan shit And then I had always said That my dream was to be a VJ Yeah And um you know what the funny thing about interviews is? It forces you to like reflect on how you got mm-hmm. to where you are. <laughs> and it's literally like therapy and you're just like, I guess, okay, well, all right, universe, you know what you're doing. Um, like I remember Caduce was a host on TRL. Yeah. And I had run into Caduce at a, at a poetry show. And I was like, Caduce, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan and I want to be on MTV and um, I, I need you to help me get there. And he was like, all right. And it took two years. But he would like, whenever there was an opportunity, he would tell me and share it with me. Mm-hmm. And then one day I ran into him at a Kanye pre-MAGA Kanye show. And um, he was like, oh, we're, we're, we're casting. I'm going to get you a meeting. Yeah. And within two weeks, I had the job. Wow. I mean, I had a meeting. I had a, I, mm-hmm. let me not mislead. I had a yeah. meeting. I had two auditions. But... I kept a good relationship with him, you know, I think people think that it's like who you know, but it's not just who you know, it's like how you know them and like what they know about what you do. Yeah. And I've been able to be successful in this industry because enough people know who I really am and what I really can do. What came first, being the job as a VJ or uh, starting the master's program at Columbia? Because I'm fascinated that you, the did the, that you did it at the same time and decided to do them at the same time. <laughs> so how did that happen? I mean, they literally came at the same time. I got booked to do MTV in March of 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, I started grad school that fall. I didn't get accepted to grad school until the summer because there was a glitch in the matrix and they had not sent out any acceptance letters. <laughs> so my whole graduate, my whole class, like my first year class at Columbia's Institute for Research in African American Studies, like we didn't find out that we were in the program until uh, a month before school started. That's bizarre. They just didn't realize that they didn't send them out. I mean, well, how's that possible? It was literally like. Well, you know how that's possible because, like, <laughs> departments don't communicate. Yeah. So, like, they send their things to these people who then send it to these yeah. people and then admissions does whatever they do. And then they're over here planning and planning and planning and they're yeah. like, something's not right. It's weird. No one has accepted <laughs> their... <laughs> no one's like... And I think, you know what it was, though? Some people had accepted because they had called. Oh, okay. I just assumed I didn't get in mm-hmm. and left it at that. And so then when they did their due diligence, it was like, oh, shucks. Like, there's a bunch of people that, like, didn't receive their letters. Yeah. Um, so I had to, like, scramble to come up with $32,000 in a month, mm-hmm. which at that time, I mean, I don't know what inflation is, but at that time it felt like a million dollars, you know, so... Coming up, Amanda describes what it felt like to land her own HBO special just a few years into performing stand-up comedy. My mom and I had to scramble for loans and stuff like that. But I got there, and it was one of the just really greatest experiences of my life. Yeah, and it's still, I mean, it's, you, you reference it in the book a lot, and it's something that seems like it really has uh, stuck with you, The what you learned there. I mean, honestly, like, I'm one of the people who I'm very, I'm so ardent about, like, trying a college education because I know for me like my college education is why is much in part why I am the kind of person 
or I won't even say the kind of person, but why I am the creative I am mm-hmm. today. Like my creativity, I'm very proud of its depth and what it's rooted in and what its uh, foundation is. And that really is a desire for it to not just serve me artistically, but to serve the people like socially and um, and radically. And I 1000% attribute that to my education at Purchase and at uh, Columbia. I love the chapter of your book where you talk about um, starting to become a comedian because it did come late uh, mm-hmm. in life for you. I mean, not late in life, but late in your career. Um, and you've only been doing it, what, for how? 2013. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, six, my anniversary six years or is, so. Yeah, my anniversary is November 6th. Um, so how did you, um, and you, you also say that you were not scared to get up on stage to to tell jokes, maybe because you had the experience of, of performing already? Yeah, I mean, I was scared to bomb, Yeah, but I wasn't scared to try. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, because I'd been hosting for so long, mm-hmm. you know, like, and not just hosting like on television, but like hosting like live shows, like, and I hosted the Roots Picnic for years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I'm not necessarily like shy about being on stage and engaging with a crowd, but it was a process, you know, to find my voice. Yeah. You know, and, what, what was the revelation for you that you wanted to do comedy? Well, I've been getting just a lot of uh, I was I was just getting frustrated with people like I knew that I needed to get out of the music space because I knew that that wasn't the space for me anymore. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know where to go next. And I would communicate with different people who would tell me different things. You know, like I remember distinctly Nick Cannon saying, like, why aren't you back in TV? Mm -hmm. You know, and me being like, I mean, that's like you make it sound like it's like just like knocking on a door and walking through. And I just felt like I didn't have like a trajectory to get there. And when I really started exploring like what my actual pieces on the, on the table, like look like compared to others, I started um, comparing just different careers that I knew. So I looked at like Chelsea Handler, like I would say like Chelsea Handler, Ellen, and Chris Rock, mm-hmm. I looked at their careers and was like, what do they have that I don't have? Because they have careers that I aspire to. Yeah. And all of them had stand-up. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing I didn't have that all of them had. And I kind of just knew, like, if you're going to put yourself in this comedy space in a legitimate way, then you can't, like, you're going to need to also be, like, funny on stage in, like, a real way. Like, you can't just be an I. Mm-hmm. comic like you're gonna yeah. need to be exceptional what do you remember about the first time you got on stage sort of a- as a comedian do you love anime gaming movies and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do then join us on crunchyroll presents the anime effect i'm nick friedman i'm lee alec murray and i'm Leah president Every week, you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued, what was in Al Capone's vault, or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, Wikihole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends. 
as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I just remember being like, oh, this feels right. Yeah. Like, this isn't really that different than what you do Mm -hmm. in a daily life. But I was really fortunate to be just in front of a warm crowd. Yeah. Um, And I just remember being surprised that what I thought, not necessarily surprised, but excited that like what I thought was funny, they thought was funny. Yeah. And let me tell you, to this day, like, you just never know, <laughs> as you know from last night's yeah. performance. <laughs> was, there a, was there a bit or a joke that was, like, the first one that you really felt, like, worked well in different rooms and for different audiences? Something that just, like, was consistent? I had this joke about GPS mm-hmm. and about how, like, I would, my GPS would be more effective if it, like, spoke to me a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that joke ended up getting me like to NBC stand up diversity finals. And, you know, it ended up being very well appreciated. Mm -hmm. I do not remember it at all. (laughs) I'm sure it's somewhere on YouTube. Um, But that was like the first one that I feel like people were really like responsive to that made me say like, oh, I I guess I can write jokes. But, you know. The t- the corner that I turned eventually was that, like, you can't just write things that are funny things. Mm-hmm. Like, it needs to be funny for you as well. Because sometimes I'll sit and I'll be like, oh, this could be funny. Oh, that could be funny. And it feels very technical. It's like science, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why when, when I get on stage and do it, people are like, well, that is not funny. <laughs> uh, because so much of my humor comes not just in, like, the actual things being said, but how it's being said, mm-hmm. the, the intonation, the um, intention behind it, et cetera. So if I'm just saying it because this seemed like it would be funny, it's going to fall flat. Yeah, or maybe it would be funny with in someone else's voice. Yeah. Or, yeah, but for you have your own you have your own voice and you have to write to your own voice. And I remember like writing a joke and then like watching a stand-up special and I cannot remember the comic's name like off the top of my head, but I just remember it was like uh, a like a, a older like white woman mom and like her premise was the same as my premise and mm-hmm. I was like okay well we've got to figure this out now. <laughs> that's a problem yeah that's a problem because like how mm-hmm. but that's how like you know some things are just funny in general but it's like how would you talk about this in an Amanda way versus in just like a funny way mm-hmm. you talk a little bit in the book about um, getting being part of the this big SNL search for black female cast members at a time when they hadn't had any in a long time. Well, that's how I started stand-up. Yeah. So, I mean, so can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, what was the, how did you hear about that and sort of what were your thoughts about the, that whole controversy at the time? Well, it's funny because like Keenan is essentially like how that all started and Keenan is now like my, I mean, that's my booski. Keenan's just like the yeah. best ever. Keenan Thompson is now, yes. he's the longest running cast member on the show. And yes. yeah, I think and and everyone, everyone loves him. I mean, bring yeah. Bring funny with me. Yeah. But at that time, people, were black you, women were not feeling yeah. him. Yeah. Were you not feeling him at the time? Uh, I think that it's not important to say I wasn't feeling him. All the black women <laughs> yeah. were not feeling him. Let's not single me out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I think that, and, and, and to be honest, in hindsight, I don't know if what he said is really what he said. Yeah, I mean... Because for, the fact of the matter is we've all seen now that, like, you can say something and media will just be like, you know what? This is actually what you said. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I think it got it got twisted a little bit. I mean, for people who don't know, he said something along the lines of there hasn't been a black woman who's ready for the show in a while or, or something like that. Yes. And that got, like, interpreted as, like, this idea that, oh, so is he saying that black women aren't good enough for the show? Yeah. And that dovetailed into, which I guess is, you know, which is ends up being positive. It dovetailed into a number of like black women showcases popping up for the purpose of proving like, no, no, we're out here. We're, we're available. We're deep. Like we're, we can come and do this show. Mm. And that was the first uh, stand up I ever did. Like they, someone was putting together a showcase and she hit me up and was like, Hey, you know, I see you on best week ever. And, 
uh, VH1, so would you want to come and do the show? She thought I already did stand-up because yeah. I was doing those shows, and those shows were chock full of like great stand-ups, like mm. Mike Britt and Nick Roll and Mulaney. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I ended up doing the lineup, you know, and I and what's funny is that I Sashir was on that show. Yeah. Sashir was on the show that Sashir's I did. Zameda, and yeah. She ended up she got the job. Getting the job. Yeah, and, and they also hired uh Leslie Jones at that time as, mm-hmm. a writer, as a writer. And then she ended up on the cast. Yeah. Yes. Um was it something that you was that a show that you you know, as a kid or, or growing up really wanted to be on? Did you ever think that you could be on Jumping it? Or? <laughs> I mean, it's very serious. Yeah. My SNL, my 90s SNL obsession, I have VHS tapes to this day. Mm-hmm. I have just episodes of SNL. Like I pretty much can recite like, I'm pretty sure I can recite like all of Eddie Murphy's sketches. Not, mm-hmm. Maybe not all, but at yeah. least the ones on the greatest hits. Like, you know, I can give you the entire yeah. Buckwheat uh, commercial. Welcome up in all the wrong places. Are you excited for him to host in a few weeks? I'm excited for anything Eddie Murphy is doing. Yeah. So let's just get that out mm-hmm. in the open. Like Eddie Murphy is just uh, the best. And when I met him, he was still the best. And that was like, because, <laughs> you know, you don't want to meet your heroes. Yeah. Um, but coming to seen, America. Have is you seen his favorite. new movie yet? Uh, Dolomite? I have not. It's good. Yeah. My mom saw it and was like, it is so funny. Eddie's back. I was like, he never left. Relax. Yeah. Um, but, you know. Eddie is uh, quintessential comedy, mm-hmm. you know, and so and, and, and SNL of the 90s and the 80s as well. Like I was a hip hop head and everybody knew that. But a lot of people didn't know that I was a comedy fanatic. Like I used to carry around Seinfeld's book sign language as if it was the Old Testament. Like mm-hmm. I've have several copies because the binding broke. Yeah. Um, and, you know, specials and. I just was always very into these things. Like laughing has always been an incredibly mm-hmm. like important part of my like ethos. So yes, I wanted to be on SNL at this point now, knowing like how I am and how I operate, I don't think it's the <laughs> work environment that's best suited for me, but I have a number of folks over there that, that really are doing the damn thing. So shout out to Sam J and yeah. Chris Red and, and Keenan who continue to, to make, you know, make, make things happen. Over yeah. There. We had Sam J on this podcast a, a while back. And, oh, good. Uh, she's, she's, on, she's on my podcast coming up. Oh, nice. Look at us. Look at you, Sam J. <laughs> just out here podcasting. Um, so you, so given all that, what did it mean to, for you to, to get uh, your own HBO special uh, earlier this year? I mean, it was incredible. I think I'm, I'm just glad it was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, people get things. People get things and then you're like, well, they got it. It was trash, though. <laughs> um, and so for me, it's like, I'm just not a sociopath, man. Like, I, I, I just care. Like, mm-hmm. I care that I'm making art that people care about. Yeah. Like, I think there's, there's this, like, idea that you're just like I did it and that's all that matters that I care about it and it's like well you know I'm not Emily Dickinson I'm not hiding poems under the mattress like I'm doing this shit because I want it to connect with you but there is a behavior that white women and women who happen to be white are doing it's an infraction that you're committing on a regular basis that all of us in here would love for you to stop doing it's plaguing offices everywhere Please, we beg of you, stop CCing all these unnecessary people on these goddamn emails! Stop! Stop! Why is Sharon on this goddamn email? She ain't got shit to do with what we're doing over here! So how did you kind of approach the special or decide what, what material you wanted in and, and just how you wanted the whole thing to, to feel? I knew that I wanted to do something that was like specifically for black women. I knew that I needed to do something that was like inherently my voice, but that was that crossed a like that had a certain broadness to the things I was talking about. Like for instance, like my next special will not be that broad. Like my next special is probably going to be something very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I mean, I already know the name of my next special. So you're going to announce it right here, right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) we haven't sold it or anything, but anyone who wants my next special, it's going to be called I'm Not For Everyone. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's happening. And uh, there'll be a chair on stage. Um, <laughs> just in case I want to sit and get, you know. Get real. Get real. But I just knew, I knew a couple like real things about doing my special. I knew one that it was like, whoa, you've only been doing this for a very short amount of time and you got a special. So people are going to actually be very, like your peers are going to actually, you know, be very critical as they should be. Of like, well, why the hell she got a special? And two, like me just wanting to prove to myself, like you're ready for this, you mm-hmm. know, that this isn't just a notch on a belt. And a lot of times in this Hollywood town, like we just kind of the art becomes um, a backseat to simply just getting accolades. Mm-hmm. And I've had to get real with myself about the fact that like. I don't really care about the accolades as much. I just need the art to be like paramount. And if I get an accolade from that, then so be it. But with this, it's like reverse, right? Like you're given the special and now it's like, you can accolade this or you going to art this or you're going to do both. And I'm, I'm just really proud of my special because I feel like it's exactly what I wanted it to be. And yeah. it's so rare that we just get to do that. And, and I think it's, be- and, and it's what I wanted it to be because I had a team that, that really respected my vision and that really gelled with me to like make that come to fruition. Mm-hmm. So I know you're, you're shooting uh, season four of Insecure now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that show because I think it's probably where I first uh, saw you. Um, and I know you've talked about how you feel very different from your character on that show. Is that accurate? Or? I think I did in the beginning. Yeah. I did in the beginning, but the way that they've written Tiffany and the way that she's evolved, I think we've gotten closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You know, she at the beginning came off as like a very it's funny because she comes off in the in the beginning of the series. She comes off the way that people actually look at me that don't know me. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very kind of confusing thing. Like I've had people that are like, I literally had somebody say to me on tw- on Instagram, like, don't you think it's funny that she feels so comfortable playing a character that's not like herself? Meaning you mean acting <laughs> like, and and I think though that that really speaks to a, a thing that I'm noticing in real in real time which is people's inability to separate like the real mm-hmm. from what they're watching and not even just like television and but like social media is doing this like I've had some stuff happen over, you know, the last year or whatever that I verbalized on social media and then like close friends didn't feel the need to even say like are you okay or anything and when you find when you ask them why they're like well I don't know I guess I guess I just felt like I was like watching you on TV mm. or like I that it's a care that the that the social media is a character as well but but they, it's like even though they know it's not it's just mm-hmm. by the by the by the nature of the device yeah they or it'll be like they feel like they took or it'll be like I felt like I spoke to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. You like you, you know, you see all these people on social media. You feel like you know them. You feel like you are communicating with them, even if you're not. not. And so like they're talking back to the screen, but I'm not out talking back to them. Yeah. And so I, I, I've seen how that has translated into like people carrying over my character, Tiffany, mm-hmm. to me, Amanda, as a person and like coloring their view of like things I say and things I do with this character that has seems larger than life. And they've do that. They've done that with the show as well you know there's certain stuff about the show that has come under fire mm-hmm. by people feeling like well this needs to be so more real and it's like it's tv yeah or people get mad at Issa for something her character did or, yeah and yeah. she's like it's television like i've had to tell people like i've had to stick up for Issa's character several times and be like it's tv yeah. it's not like it's not mm-hmm. i know that her character and her have the same name and that can be uh, i guess a little confusing but like for real like the joy of having tv is that we can go into a fantasy space, like where things don't have to be so for, so perfect and so aligned. And so over the course of the season, like we've seen my character actually show that in real time where like she was very like perfect and aligned. Mm-hmm. And we've seen as the seasons go, like, you know, just things not necessarily be as perfect as she wants them to be and revealing her truthfulness. And that's me. Mm-hmm. I loved the uh, the scene um, in the Coachella episode of you and, and Issa in the car um, outside the 7-Eleven. Oh, when um, I was acting? Yeah, when you were acting. <laughs> what was wrong? 
I was so mad because I haven't gotten to do like anything serious like acting wise in such a long time and I blew my tears on the wide shot and I was so mad <laughs> well so, I, th- I love your performance in that scene and I think a lot of you. I mean obviously it got a lot of uh, praise and attention I think and, and I don't know I, I just feel like I heard from a lot of people about that scene um, so can you just talk about what that um, what that was like filming um, in, in the car with her yeah I mean I think that you know, the beauty of Insecure is, like, it's a dramedy, so we do get to have these moments where we can, like, drop in, like, and have a real, like, a real moment. Like, I was watching Pen15 mm-hmm. this morning, and I, like, was crying, and I was like, ooh, <laughs> they got me with the dramedy. Yeah, that show's so good. Oh, man. Um, and, I mean, I'm a cancer, so there's that, too, but, like, still. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because we, we cry for everything. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this water spills, I might cry. <laughs> um, but that scene... What I really appreciate, what, I, what I'm really glad about is how many people felt seen mm-hmm. by that scene. Like how many folks who have had kids, like how many women yeah. who have gone through this experience um, felt like they had been seen and that I could carry the words on the page through performance wise to make them feel seen. Because it's one thing to write it on the page, but like if I don't nail the performance, then it just feels hokey and hacky. Mm-hmm. And so... I was really glad that I was able to like bring that realness to life because I haven't had that experience, mm-hmm. and that is acting. Yeah, where where is Tiffany in this in this new season? What's what's going on with her? Where, what's the what's the relationship like? Uh, We've got to wait and find out. <laughs> I mean, even just can you talk about sort of where she is at the end of the of the last season, going into the next season? Or She's what? pregnant. Yeah. And then she comes into the next season. And she's <laughs> still pregnant. Yeah. Yes. Do you like being uh, having to wear the pregnancy uh, thing? What's you know what like? though? It's actually not bad because you don't have to like be conscious of like your body in the same way. Mm-hmm. And like I'm just like hanging out. Like, <laughs> and everyone used to make fun of me. Um, you know because they like. Why are you walking like you're pregnant? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I am uh, Daniel Day Lewis, okay? Like I'm method. Like this is where I'm at. Like, no, I. But when you ha- you can't help it when you're wearing the pregnancy belly, you legit can't help but mm-hmm. like sit with your legs all the way open and like eat, like hold your back when you get up. Like you waddle. Um, but the funniest part was like, you know what happens on set is like I'll just take off my belly and like be like, can you can you hold my pregnancy? And mm-hmm. like the people who've actually had a baby are just like, bitch. Yeah. I wish it was that easy that I could just take my pregnancy off and hang it up. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. Are you still enjoying making the show? Yeah, I think Insecure is... The the characters go on a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that it becomes not enjoyable when you feel stagnant. Mm-hmm. You know, when you feel static and you feel like the writing isn't serving like you as a creative or the character that you've come to know, you know, but I definitely get to like grow with Tiffany and she gets to change and shift and they are very conscious of that. And I appreciate that. Um, I know you talked a lot about the, that Emmy after party drama on your podcast and sort of told the whole story. Are there any updates on that? I mean, how's it been on set uh, since all that went down? I mean, the beauty is that we're all like, professional people who have worked each other with each other for like mm-hmm. four seasons and i think we all understand that like there aren't even enough black shows for us to even let that scenario bleed over into what we're doing right you know and so i'm fortunate to be able to work with folks who understand that and i think what a lot of people don't grasp is that like when you're doing television and you're doing like you know this work like you're still at work mm-hmm. so 
this is what I mean by like people thinking that like what they watch on TV is going to be like the actual of all time. Like we're friends on the show, but even on the show, like their friends have like strained moments and Mm -hmm. they have like ups and downs. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so if you're on a set every day for 15 hours a day, like there's going to be those things too. And not just with us on camera, like that happens with the crew Mm -hmm. that happens with the writers. Like that happens with humans, Yeah, you know? So like things happen. It's just that, Due to media and the internet, we don't respect that in the general sense. We think that everything is like in a vacuum. Coming up, Amanda reveals what it felt like to confront Caitlyn Jenner for her white privilege in that viral clip from Katy Perry's house. So what I want to do now is do a little bit of a speed round where we talk about some of the stuff from from your career that we haven't really delved into yet and if there's sort of a a story or memory that that pops to mind that you want to share okay um so you mentioned deaf poetry um but Mm -hmm. uh is there when you think about your time uh you know working on that uh what do you what what comes to mind i remember getting on the elevator with badu and being like (laughs) I remember most deaf having to get me into the after party because I was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember thinking I'm killing it in my Jordache long denim skirt uh, with my one arm frilly top from Rainbow. Um, I remember Kanye West being in the front row. If you watch it, you will see that he's sitting in the front row yeah. with his foot on the stage. Um, was that intimidating? No, he wasn't. What him? He wasn't Kanye West. I mean, he, he was, was just some so, dude. He was just some his, dude. It was more so like take your foot off the stage. <laughs> like, uh, I remember my my roommates from college being sat on stage mm-hmm. and just being and and me feeling so much more secure about what I needed to do because like my girls is right here, like yeah. on the stage with me. Um, and I remember Stan Lathan just being so kind. I just really remember him being kind. I remember Russell Simmons being kind. You know, when we were doing that, and me being this young person really trying to just feel like I belonged at a place where like everyone just seemed like so seasoned, you know, and so about this life. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, it was like the first step to getting to where I am now. You do mention some a little bit of uh, sexual harassment by Russell Simmons in the in the book, though, no? Well, two things can happen. Yeah, you can have a good experience with someone yeah. and sexual harassment with them as well. Why did you Why did you want to include that in the book? Because I was talking about sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Now it's your experience. Yep. <laughs> nothing Nothing else you want to say about that? <laughs> I say it in the book. Yeah. you got to read the book. Got to read the book. Everyone read the book for that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Smart, Funny, and Black too, because um, yeah. we haven't really gotten to that yet, uh, and that's your live. Uh, show that you've been doing for a while. How did mm-hmm. that um, start? And there's also a really fascinating story in the book about trying to maybe turn it into a TV show and that mm-hmm. not, not not working transpiring. out. Um, so yeah, I mean, is there when you think about um, that whole thing? What what do you what do you want to share? What comes to mind or a story or or just well, Smart Funny and Black is really just my like perfect storm of my academic background, my comedic love and my desire to really help and be a part of like reinforcing community amongst the black people of this country and um, and doing so with the best tools I have, which is my creativity and my humor mm-hmm. and really just using the power of culture and shared culture and shared experience to remind folks like why we need to love each other more, why we need to take care of each other more and not just as people, but like as black people in America, like it's imperative that we make a shift in this space because there is such a shift (laughs) being made to just to dissolve that anything of that, you know? So that is what smart, funny and black at its core is really about. I mean, on the surface level, it's a variety game show. Mm -hmm. You know, that brings funny people to the stage to playing games that I've written and created that test their knowledge of black culture, black history and the black experience. And in the meantime of that, we have sing alongs and, you know, there's jokes and there's moments of ebony excellence. Yeah. (laughs) And. Uh, when people come to Smart, Funny, and Black, whether it's to be on stage as performers or to be spectators, I mean, the biggest compliment I get is people saying that they left with a new 
like rejuvenance of like hope and joy and mm-hmm. pride in not only themselves but in like their black experience and I love when people say like damn like I was at the show saying to myself like damn I need to do more research like I need to delve more into like my culture and um I just take a really big responsibility I, I consider it to be my responsibility as somebody who had like the fortunate nature of like getting to use my higher education to delve more into like my own personal identity to like bring that to folks who maybe didn't get to do that. And is there any hope still that it will get to TV or what do you, how do you think about that now? The revolution will not be televised. Yeah. It will be live. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about your, uh, your famous confrontation with Caitlyn Jenner at a mm-hmm. Katy Perry's dinner party, which is a, was a crazy thing that happened. I'm good for famous confrontations, y'all. <laughs> um, what is there? Has there been any uh, fallout or updates on that? Have you had it? Have you um, had any contact with with Caitlyn Jenner or, or anything that that's sort of come out of that? Do you feel like she's more aware of her privilege? Not that I could tell. No. Correct. So that's the update <laughs> on that. The reason I am so passionate, and I'm not hostile. I'm passionate. The reason I am so passionate is because I've had such a different experience in this country than you. Because as a black woman, the government is so much in my life. And it always has been. Like, the government literally said that black men couldn't even be in the house or else women could not get welfare. And that's a big reason why there's such a chasm between black women and black men in this generation. So I think that there's just a lot to understand for like why people are talking the way they're talking about different things. I understand why you're talking the way you're talking. Because I know, because. I I just don't understand what am I talking? I just said I believe in this country. Yes, you You can say that in a way that I cannot because you've had a different experience because this country is here for you. This country ain't here for me in the same way, sis. It isn't. And you as a trans person have to also identify the fact that this country hasn't been here for trans until like, Maybe two o'clock today. I think, you know, one thing I've, I know is that sometimes for the, actually for the most part, like situations are happening in a multi-layered way. Mm-hmm. There's the surface and that's involving the two people that are there. But then there's also this other layer that's how it affects the people that are witnessing it, you know, and it's the people that are witnessing it in the immediate space as well as the people who are witnessing it. On the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. What I'm most proud of with that situation was that I felt like a number of people made it clear to me that them watching me choose to be honest in a space where politeness would have probably been the safer bet empowered them to feel like they had a voice in spaces where they would have been expected to also be polite. And, you know, the thing about me is like, like that doesn't change. Like, I think some people would rather me just do that in like this space, but it's not okay in that space. Like if it makes, it's okay over there because those are the people who are over there. But over here, if it's going to affect me, then I don't want you to bring that over here. But mm-hmm. it's like, I'm a truth teller in any space. Right. Um, and I think that, I think that if I had asked certain people like how I should go into that room, they would have said, you know, just play it cool. And if I had played it cool, I think I would have been playing myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, that scenario ricocheted and ended up becoming like this iconic moment for a lot of people simply because I said something to someone that they may have wanted to say to that person for a long time, but mm-hmm. never had had the access to. Yeah. So the way we end every episode is by asking comedians, what's the last uh, thing that made you laugh really hard? So it could be something you oh, saw on everything TV. Dimitri, everything Dimitri Martin said last night made yeah. me laugh. Like, I literally, like, Dimitri Martin, I love his stand-up. I love. I love his, <laughs> I love his stand-up. I love his haircuts. I love his name. Um, he, like... This is the thing. Like, not all comics are funny off stage. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of people may say, like, when you hear me in interviews, I'm not necessarily, like, funny in interviews, you know, because people always ask me these deep-ass questions where I don't get to be <laughs> funny. I have to be, like, this introspective guru. But Dimitri Martin, I, I'm telling you, everything that came out of that man's mouth in that green room last night was hilarious. And I just found myself at a certain point just looking at him, just like... <laughs> I'm like, you, you just, you're just funny. You're a funny guy. He's funny. You know, once I move past like laughing and I'm just like, I can't even keep laughing. Like I'm just impressed, mm-hmm. you know, that really, that really does a lot. So 
being in the presence of Dimitri Martin and Patton Oswalt last night was like fabulous. And of course, Kevin Nealon. Kevin Nealon's another one. Everything yeah. Kevin Nealon says is funny. Yeah. Every single thing Kevin Nealon says is funny. I don't even know how it's possible. I aspire. I aspire, Kevin Nealon, to be as consistently <laughs> funny as you are. He, the mini, everything he opens his mouth to say is funny. I don't even understand. It's not even like he's doing a funny voice. <laughs> um, so yeah, but in terms of like something public, I would say that's like made me laugh. Um, Jay Versace, who's a young brother, who's a social media influencer, did a video where he's sitting on a couch with this white guy whose name I don't know. I apologize for not knowing this person's name, but they're on a they're on a bed with a big Casio keyboard on their laps. And Jay starts singing, no weapon uh, formed against me shall prosper. And someone sent that to me knowing like what's been going on, just kind of like me having to deal with the internet's mm. uh, slings and arrows. Like I'm, I just feel like I'm Rickon. I just feel like I'm Rickon and I'm running from Ramsey. And I'm like, zigzag, Amanda, zigzag. And so someone sent me that video and I just was dying because Jay Versace just warms my soul on a regular basis. And he was just singing it. But he was singing it in the style of like a character in a Tyler Perry play. Mm. And just all of the elements put together just brought me to a place of joy. So thank you, Jay, for bringing me to joy on such a regular basis. And thank you, Amanda, for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thank you again so much to Amanda Seals. Go buy her new book, Small Doses, by clicking the link in the show notes for this episode. And look out for season four of Insecure coming in 2020. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And please follow Last Laugh Pod on Instagram. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith and Scott Porch for Starburns Audio and edited by Mackenzie Mazel. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. I think we know the rest of the story. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.